Welcome to the Eerie First Podcast, the weekly podcast series featuring Pastor Nicole Schreiber. Here's a question for you. What do you think is the most quoted verse in the Bible? How about the most loved? What do you think is the most difficult verse to hear or even the most sobering? Well, we're going to dive deep into those things in a new series we're calling The Most. Pastor Nicole is going to start things off by looking at the most quoted verse in the Bible. And by the time we're done, we're going to talk about hamburgers, football, and the incredible promise God makes to us all. Let's get started on our new series. Here's Pastor Nicole. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So what is the most important verse in the Bible? It's not a trick question. Think about what you think it is. What is the most difficult verse? Maybe you've read it already in these last uh, few months, last month as you've been reading through the Bible. Which one provides the most comfort? Which verse is the most sobering? Which one is the most quoted? Well, today I'm starting a new series, and I'm calling it The Most. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to zero in on some specific verses in the Scripture. Now, I think all of these will be familiar to you. You've probably heard them before. But we're going to look at the context surrounding the verses and see how each one plays out in our lives. And along the way, I really believe that you will gain insight into who Christ is and the depth of his love for you. And this series will also really enhance the Bible reading plan that we're doing uh, this year. So we're going to begin today uh, in John chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the most quoted verse in the Bible. Now, I got to thinking that I wonder if when Jesus said this truth, because this is actually the words of Jesus, so when he had this moment where he said this truth, um, if he knew and the people around him knew, it would become the most quoted verse in the entire Bible? Did they know it would eventually be plastered on t-shirts and bracelets and pillows and keychains and masks in the year 2020 (laughs) and uh, fast food cups? You can see an example there. When he said these words, did in that moment he think this will be the verse that everyone will quote all the time and they will know it so well? As you just heard it read via video, the most quoted verse in the Bible, probably no surprise to you, is John 3.16. And we're going to read it out loud together. Okay, so I'm going to put it up on the screen. Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. See, we just fed into the madness by quoting it together. Do you see that? It's even more quoted now. In order to fully digest this verse, we have to zoom out a little bit in John 3. And so let's start in John chapter 3, verse 1. And this is kind of what's happening leading up to this moment when Jesus says this verse. Okay, so it starts by telling us that there's a man named Nicodemus. And this verse is careful to describe him as a religious person, okay, a Pharisee. Now, in many ways, the Pharisees, uh, we kind of think of them as we hear about them in our time, they kind of get a bad rap, right? You hear about the Pharisees and you're like, oh, those guys. But in that time, they really were the cream of the crop, if you will. They were the best people in the whole country. And this club that the Pharisees had was very elite. In fact, when you became a Pharisee, you entered into a brotherhood where you would take a pledge in front of three witnesses and you would say, I'm going to spend my whole life observing every detail of the scribal law. So their whole life, their entire goal is to make sure every single detail in the scribal law that they were doing it perfectly. And the Pharisee actually means the separated one. And so they said, look, we are going to be the people who separate ourselves from all the ordinary life, and we're going to focus fully on keeping every detail of the law. Now, the details of the law were very, very serious and very, very meticulous. You may have gotten to this part in the scripture if you're reading through Leviticus or some of these other Old Testament uh, books. And so here's an, just one example, okay, of uh, some of the rules in the scribal law. Okay, so for example, to tie a knot on the Sabbath was technically working. And was working allowed on the Sabbath? You probably know that one. No, right? Working was not allowed on the Sabbath. And to tie a knot was technically working. So if you were a sailor, you were out of luck, <laughs> okay? Because you couldn't even tie your boat up to the shore when you got there because that would technically mean you're working and you would be breaking the scribal law. Or if you needed water from a well and you had to tie a, a rope, a knot on a bucket and put it down in the well, you technically couldn't do that, even if you were really, really thirsty, because you would be working and that would be breaking the scribal law. Now, I was curious, uh, so I looked up if untying a knot was allowed. It is not. That is also working. Okay, so tying it, also untying it, not, not good on the Sabbath. Okay, so interestingly though, according to the law, a woman could tie up a slit in her girdle or the straps in her sandals. That is not technically breaking the law. Those knots are allowed on the Sabbath. So I was thinking, technically, if you did need water from the well, could you drop the bucket down the well with a woman's girdle and then get it back up and that wouldn't be breaking the law? Okay, I wouldn't be a very good Pharisee because I'd always be thinking about how to bend the rules, but it sounds as ridiculous as it really is. Okay, the rules sound as ridiculous as they really were. And these rules, which there are so many of them, were the kind of thing which to the scribes and the Pharisees were a matter of life and death. And this is what we would call, what they would call, 
religion. This is what religion is. In their minds, following these rules is how they pleased and served God. And so untying a knot on the Sabbath to them wasn't pleasing and serving God. And therefore, if they're breaking the rule, they're not pleasing God. But what happened was the rules became more important than serving God. And so Nicodemus, we, what we know about him, he was a really good Pharisee. He was known for obeying the, the rules flawlessly. And yet we see here that Nicodemus must have known something was missing. He must have felt the void and the emptiness that religion brings because Nicodemus knew there was something more. Now, you might say to me, Pastor Nicole, how do you know that? How do you know he knew there was something more? Let me tell you how I know it. Verse two, it says, he came to Jesus at night. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but but how do we know that he wanted something more? Because if Nicodemus felt that everything was just perfectly inside of him, that he had a great relationship with God, he wouldn't have, because he followed all the rules, he wouldn't have to go find Jesus. He would have already known that he was pleasing God, but he, in his curiosity, in, in the way that, that he, the emptiness that he felt said, I need to go find Jesus because I know there's something missing. And I love how we get a glimpse of God's character here that he chases after and he draws to himself not just the wayward heart, but the religious heart. He, he wants to offer something fresh and something new. Nicodemus knew that there was something more, that there was something more than just following the law and that with Jesus, there's always more. How many of you are thankful for that this morning? That with Jesus, there's always more. There's always more. All right, so we know Nicodemus felt this way because in verse 2 he says he came to Jesus at night. Now, you, if you're reading that scripture, you might skip over those two words kind of quickly, but it's really important to the text, okay, those two words, at night. This is why it's important. What is significant? Why, why is at night significant? Well, first, worth noting, at night meant it was dark, now, that little piece of genius you can have free of charge, okay? It's dark. It's dark at night. And these two small words aren't just about night on the outside, okay? They aren't just about a, the big fall, fiery sunshine ball went down. At times when the scripture references night, it's saying, look, there's more than meets the eye. There's darkness Darkness, maybe that's in your soul. Darkness that's surrounding you. Darkness that you don't know what to do with. There's night inside our heart. And this scripture is painting us this picture that Nicodemus was struggling. He had night inside of him. He was struggling. He was suffering. The law was not producing joy and hope and peace that he thought it would. And so he is having this moment. So he comes to Jesus at night. That's also symbolizing uh, in his struggle, in his darkness, right? He comes to Jesus. Now, in a literal sense, if you're reading this literally, Nicodemus may have come to Jesus at night because he didn't want anyone to know, right? So he was hiding. He thought, if I go in the night, my pharisaical friends won't wonder where I am. They won't think any less of me. Uh, no one will see me when I'm talking to Jesus. Another uh, theological theory is that maybe uh, Nicodemus thought, you know, I'm going to go at night because Jesus will be the most undisturbed. 
He's heard about all the crowds that are surrounding him all the time, uh, but he wanted an absolutely private and completely undisturbed time with Jesus. And so he said, look, nighttime is the best time. So we don't know uh, if Nicodemus was scared or strategic, but what we do know is that it's better to come to Jesus at night than not at all. It's better to come to Jesus even at night than not at all. I want to remind you this morning, there is no bad time to come to Jesus. There is no season of your life that disqualifies you from coming to Jesus. There is no amount of days away from you speaking a word to him that he doesn't want you to come back. He is always willing to attend your need. He is waiting for you at night, but he's also waiting for you in the morning and all through the day, and he is always, always happy to hear from you. And so we see in John 3, verses 2 through 4, Nicodemus, who's the Pharisee, goes to him at night, and he begins to talk to Jesus, and this is what he says. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Okay. So Nicodemus was a very intelligent man. Okay, we know this because he's a Pharisee. He's following and remembering all these rules. But I think he could have benefited from like another health class or something. Okay, he's saying, Nicodemus, no, no, no. It doesn't mean climbing back into the womb as a grown person. That's gross. Okay, like Jesus is so patient. He's so patient with us, isn't he? He's so patient with Nicodemus when he's asking kind of stupid questions. And Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level, right? He's talking about spiritual things. And Nicodemus is taking it on a literal level. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus is thinking literally, like, how, how this seems impossible, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm talking not about your body, but about your spirit, about your soul, about who you are. And I think this highlights to us why it's so important for us to have a relationship with Jesus when we're reading God's word and when we're hearing his voice. Because we, if we're not intimately tuned into him, if, if, if we are just religious and we don't have a relationship with Jesus, then we take things literally. We take things literally. But having a relationship with Christ helps us grasp what God really means. What God is really saying to us and we need to pray for that lens of religion to fall down and to shatter before us. And we need to ask Jesus, how do you see this? How do you see people? What is it meant by what you are choosing to do? Many of us know in this year that we've been experiencing, there are things that are happening. And as we're watching it, if we take it very literally and don't see God's hand in it, we can have a lot of fear, right? We can have a lot of, of concern, but we can say to the Lord, but what are you doing? What are you doing with this? What are you doing spiritually and supernaturally and not just literally? And this made all the difference for Nicodemus. And I believe that it will drastically change your intake on what Christ is trying to tell you to. Is that when you begin to, to understand that it's not just about what Jesus in the, in the Bible is literally saying. It's about what he's saying spiritually, what he's saying supernaturally. Okay, so we're talking about this phrase, born again, born again. Now, 
In the last about 100 years of the church history, that word born again out of this particular passage actually has become a somewhat of a catchphrase. But what does it actually mean? Like, what does Jesus mean when he said, you must be born again? Well, the original language, a closer meaning would be translated, uh, born afresh. Born afresh. The words actually mean from the beginning. And so what he's saying here is that no one can see the kingdom of God unless a person starts a new life over from the beginning. From the beginning. This is really important for us to understand that Jesus doesn't just make us better. He makes us new. Jesus doesn't just make us better. He makes us new. And when you're born again, when you're born afresh, you don't just become an upgraded version of yourself. Born again means the Lord makes a change within your heart, that the old things have passed away and the new things have come. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that there will be a noticeable difference in who you are when you are born again. Will you still be apt to sin? Yes. Will you still fall short of the glory of God? Yes. But there will be a drastic change in your heart. You'll trade the old one for the new one. I loved what Dr. Kim said last week about how uh, it's not just about remodeling the house. It's about destroying the house and rebuilding it. Right? I thought that was such a great analogy. And he didn't even read my notes for this week first. Look at that. But... The example of this is, listen, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to come into your life to make you better. He says, I'm going to come into your life and make you brand new. And that's what being born again means. That's what being born afresh means, is you're a whole new person all over again. Not literally, Nicodemus, but spiritually, spiritually inside of who you are. Here's a great example of this truth. I read about it. Um, it was happened in the year 1505, and a young man named Martin was traveling home, and he got caught in a violent storm, and he was terrified, and he promised God that if God let him live, that Martin would become a monk. Uh, probably in that moment, he was like, just help me live. I'll do anything. I'll become a monk. But actually, the man survived the storm and remembered his promise and thought, well, I guess I have to do it because I promised God that I would. And it says that he entered the Augustinian order of monks in Erfurt, Germany. It talks about how he obsessively performed his religious tasks. He, he, he had hard work, confession, penance. It never seemed like enough. He wrestled with his own salvation. He hungered for acceptance for God, from God. He realized his emptiness. It's a lot like the Nicodemus narrative, okay? He, he's trying to do everything right. He's trying to follow all the rules, but he's still feeling this emptiness between him and the Father. And then the story goes that in Rome, uh, there is a set of 28 marble stairs. I have a picture here called the Scala Sancta. Now, these stairs are known to be the ones that Jesus climbed up on his way to the crucifixion, and they were actually moved from Jerusalem to Pontius Pilate's palace in the year 326. And visitors to the Scala Sancta are allowed to climb the steps, but you're only allowed to climb the steps if you climb them on your knees, one by one, because they are supposed to be this uh, just amazing uh, moment of humility and remembering that Jesus uh, climbed those stairs before he was crucified. And so Martin goes to Rome, and as he's climbing on his knees, slowly 
and contemptively, a, a, a verse comes to mind that changes his life, and it's Romans 1.17 that says, uh, the righteous man will live by faith. And Martin says, uh, just like a flash of lightning, it strikes him that he realizes it's faith that counts, not works. It's not all the things I'm checking the box about. It's my heart. And the words of Jesus echo in his mind that he must be born again. It's all different now. And when Martin reaches the top of the stairs, he realizes that he had lived a life pounding on heaven's door in his own strength with his own works. And exhausted, he falls before the door at the top of these stairs. And he realizes this liberating truth that Christ himself is the door. That, that Christ himself is the door, and it opens by no human effort. There's nothing he can do. There's no checklist he can make. The door swings open because of the well-oiled hinges of Christ's redeeming love and overwhelming grace, and the door opens by faith and faith alone. Now, you may recognize this young monk. His name is Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, one of the most influential leaders in Christianity in the world. And historians believe that this moment of climbing the stairs was when Martin Luther first gained his true understanding of the gospel, that his true experience of being born again happened on his knees as he climbed these 28 stairs and this fire that lit inside of him, burned his whole life long, and this message that he would share that would change the face of the world. So now, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus goes on, and Jesus continues to explain to him, look, uh, religion is never what I intended to be the door to relationship with me. Religion is not the door. I'm the door. And this is where we come, finally, to the most quoted verse in the Bible. And I just want to look at it just this morning, kind of piece by piece. It says, for God. It all started with God, the greatest lover of us of all time. So loved. Love is who God is. I love how it doesn't say, so God manipulated the world. So God disciplined the world, so God punished the world until they came to him. It says that God loved the world, <laughs> that God's strategy is love, and he continues to love the world with the hope that every person comes into relationship with him. And so for God so loved the world, not just the rich, not just the elite, not just the religious, not just the powerful, not just a certain race or a certain culture or a certain nation, not just men and not just women, not just those who love him back. But God loved the world, the sinful, broken, messed up, backwards world. And he loved the world so much that he gave. The measure of love is always its willingness to give, it's, its capacity to sacrifice. Love's prerogative is to give and to give and to give. And the measure of God's love is that he gave the most precious and important thing, and that was his son. And so for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the greatest possible gift that God could offer, Jesus Christ. That whoever believes in him 
Now, that word belief, it's more than just that intellect. Remember, it's more than just the commitment to follow all the rules in the Bible. It's more than that. That word believe means you place your life and your trust in complete surrender to the one in whom you believe. I heard a story of a missionary uh, who was translating a language of a a tribe that he was working in, and um, he couldn't translate the word believe and one day, a native ran into his hut, completely exhausted, because he had run for a, for a really long way. And the native threw him uh, himself on his hammock and breathed this sigh and laid on his hammock and uttered a word in the dialect that the missionary had never heard. And the missionary said, what's that word? And, 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 the, and the native repeated it, and he said, that's what it means. That word means I am resting all my weight here. And the missionary said, that's exactly what it means to believe, to rest all your weight in Jesus Christ, as if Jesus was like a hammock that you fall into and your soul rests for all of eternity, resting all your weight, everything you have, all your chips in the basket, in that moment, resting all your weight, that means believe. Whoever believes, resting all your weight in him, So for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish means die. We're all dying on the outside. And on the inside, we're perishing if we don't have a relationship with Christ. And the Lord would have been justified to simply leave us under the condemnation of our sin. However, he loved us to the point that he himself was willing to provide the full payment for our sin. And Jesus had to pay in full for mankind's transgressions, and he willingly did so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life, the highest quality of life you could ever live, a life of joy and a life of peace in the spirit of God, a life which will continue for eternity after this life, an eternity that has no more crying or tears, just constant and unending joy. So there you have it, the most quoted verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. This verse carries a powerful message, a message that tells the gospel. And the good news is that we carry, as followers of Jesus, this message. It's amazing what one sentence in the Holy Word of God can tell us. It's amazing what God can do. I want you to watch this quick video as I close uh, from a well-known athlete, Tim Tebow. You know, there's been so many times in my life where I felt unworthy or unqualified, but God would just do something so cool in the midst of it. And one of those times was when I was a junior at the University of Florida and we were getting ready to play Tennessee. And I see some of my teammates putting different eye blacks under their eyes and uh, they're putting like their mom's name or their area code under their eyes. And so I started to think, you know, I wonder if I could put something under my eyes that maybe could encourage someone or inspire someone. So I was like, well, God bless. I don't know. And I was like, well, Philippians 4.13, I could do that. You know, I can do all things through Christ strengthens me. I was like, that'll be that'll be good for a football player. So I put it under my eyes. We were blessed to win because it was Tennessee. And um, 
it really wasn't that big of a deal after the game. A couple of local newspapers wrote about it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But I kept wearing it under my eyes every single game. And as probably a lot of you know, Gator fans are very passionate. So four, five, six weeks later, they're selling it at the Gator bookstore, at the Florida library. <laughs> you have thousands of fans showing up to games wearing Philippians 413 under their eyes. And I honestly believe half of them don't even know what it means. I had one guy, his name was Phil, come up to me and say, hey, did you wear that under your eyes for me? It's <laughs> like... No, it's a Bible verse. <laughs> what are you talking about? And um, so we get to the SEC championship game at the end of the year, and we're getting ready to run out of the tunnel, and football's kind of one of those things where it's you have such tunnel vision. It's just one thing at a time, one thing at a time. And as I was getting ready to run out of the tunnel, I really felt like God was putting in my heart to change the verse. I was like, really, right now? And But I realized that if we won, we'd be playing a national championship on one of the biggest stages that I might ever get. And so that would be the right opportunity to change the verse. And so we were blessed to win that game. And six weeks, the next six weeks leading up to national championship, I was agonizing and really contemplating what verse I was going to go with. And God kept bringing it to my heart and my head, John 3, 16, because it's the essence of our Christianity. It's the essence of our hope. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's what gives us hope as Christians. So I decided to go with that. And so two days before the, the game, I went up to my parents' hotel room in Miami, Florida. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I've decided to change the verse. And we're going to go with John 3.16. My mom's super sweet and supportive. Oh, that's great, honey. My dad's like, well, have you told Coach Meyer? Because... <laughs> He says he just likes his routines, but that dude is so superstitious, it's ridiculous. So he's like, you really need to tell him. So we were right down the street at FAU practicing. We finished our last practice for a national championship. I said, hey, Coach Meyer, can I talk to you for a second? He's like, yeah, how you feeling? Your arm good, leg good, you ready for the game? I was like, yeah, I'm good. Um, you know the verse I'm wearing my He's like, yeah, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ strengthens me. I love it. I was like, well, I'm going to change that verse tomorrow night. What? What are you talking about? You can't change that verse. That verse got us here. Uh, it didn't get us here. So after a couple minutes of explaining it to him, he totally was supportive and understood. And honestly, after that, I didn't even really think about it. I just went out there and tried to win the championship game. We were blessed to win. And two days later, I was at Ballyhoo Restaurant in Gainesville, Florida with me, my mom, my dad, my aunt, and um, Coach Meyer. And Coach Meyer gets a call, and he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, bye. And I was like, who is that? He said, that was Steve McLean. Here is our PR guy in Florida. So what do you have to say? He said, did you know that during that game, 94 million people Googled John 3.16? And honestly, my first thought was, how the heck do 94 million people not know John 3.16? <laughs> Hashtag Sunday school. It's like the first thing you hear, you know? But I was just sitting in Ballyhoo Restaurant, just so humbled at how big the God is that we serve and how he wants to do amazing things in us and through us. And when we just step out and show a little faith or a little courage or we just decide, hey, it's okay to be a little bit different than everybody else, what God can do in our lives. And that game just happened to be in 2009, January 8th. Well, exactly three years later, January 8th, 2012, we just happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers and I never even thought about John 3.16 one time, so I can't take any credit for it. I just tried to go out there and win a playoff game, and we were blessed to win this crazy playoff game in overtime. And I run in and try to, you know, shower really quick and change because I wanted to go celebrate with my family. So I'm going, running to go and do my press conference really quick. And uh, right before I walk into the press conference room, Patrick, our PR guy, jumps in front of me. He says, Timmy, do you realize what happened? I was like... Yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. Like, 
let me do this. He's like, no, do you realize what happened? I was like, I guess not. He said, Timmy, it's exactly three, three, not three years from the night you wore John 3.16 on your eyes. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And he was like, no, you don't realize. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per completion were 31.6. Your yards per rush were 3.16. The ratings for the night were 31.6, and the time of possession was 31.06. And during the game, 90 million people Google John 316, and it's the number one trending thing on every platform. just standing there in that hallway getting ready to do this press conference thinking that that night was about a football game and it really wasn't because the God that we serve is such a big God and standing in that hallway I knew that it was something so much more because the God that we serve is a God of miracles as we're going to hear today and it's a God that does pretty amazing things in us and through us and I think we just have to be willing to step out and say here you go God I'm going to give you my fish and, and my loaves of bread and watch what he does with it but the God we serve can do pretty awesome amazing things so good so good would you stand up this morning if you have any questions this morning about um, being born again or about anything else I said today or you need prayer for anything at all, big or small, uh, we have a prayer team at the table to my right. So please come on over. Uh, Pastor Daniel is actually going to be down here. Come on over before you leave today. Uh, we would love to talk to you more about it. And so let me pray to close us this morning. God, I thank you so much that you so loved the world me and, and each person in this room and everyone on this planet, that you gave your only son to die so that we could believe in him, we could rest all our weight in him and have eternal life. God, you are awesome. You are powerful. I love you. And we give you praise this morning. Amen. Hey, have an incredible week. Don't miss next Sunday as we continue the most series. Thank you for listening to the Eerie First Podcast. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can find all our series videos and podcasts at eeriefirst.org, along with all our latest news, announcements, and information. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.